Perverted. Brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hi everyone listening and welcome to the Afroverdict podcast and thank you for allocating the time to learn something new about Russian politics. Today I'm excited to dive into a fascinating topic that has been generating a lot of buzz since last week and that is President Vladimir Putin's annual year-end direct line press conference. In this episode I'll be joined by two esteemed researchers who will analyze Putin's responses to questions sent to him from all across the Federation. We'll be discussing a range of issues from Putin's stance on de-dollarization and the current world order to his view on BRICS, the Ukrainian conflict and Russia's relationship with Europe. As you know, Putin's direct line press conference is an annual event that has become a tradition in Russian politics. It's a unique opportunity for the Russian population to directly engage with their leader and ask questions on a wide range of topics. This year's edition was of course no exception with Putin fielding questions on everything from the economy and healthcare to foreign policy and national security. But today's uh, so-called panel of experts will be providing their perspectives on Putin's responses, analyzing the implications of his statements and offering insights into what they might mean for Russia and the wider world. We'll also be discussing some of the key themes that emerged from the press conference such as Russia's role in the world order, its relations with Europe and the West, and its economic development strategy. So, whether you're interested in international relations, economics, or you just simply want to learn more about Russian politics, this episode is exactly for you. I'm your host Viktor Anikin and thanks for joining me as we delve into the complex and often fascinating world of Russian politics and explore the latest developments in this dynamic and rapidly changing region. Coming right up. First joining me to analyze Putin's statements is uh, Dr. Oskar van Heerden, senior research fellow at the Center for African Diplomacy and Leadership at the University of Johannesburg. Doc, welcome to Afroverdict and thanks for joining me. Putin made a couple of interesting remarks concerning the dollar as a means of global transactions or rather de-dollarization as a means of global transactions. But, you know, instead of me indirectly repeating the president's words, let's listen to an excerpt of his speech. Yes, we are all aware of the idea of the president-elect of Argentina to use the US dollars within the country. This is a sovereign decision of each state. First of all, the inflation in Argentina is about 143%. And there are numerous problems, and even the previous authorities were talking about that they have issues with paying back the loans that have been issued to Argentina from various sources. So the logic here is clear. However, this would mean a significant loss of the national sovereignty. If the current Argentinian authorities see no other solution, in this financial conundrum, the decision is up to them. However, this would mean a significant loss of their sovereignty. Now, the next point. There is also a social and economic component of such decisions. You are from the RBC channel. You specialize in these kinds of stuff. You are all specialists and experts. You'll know what I'm talking about, and the citizens will understand. There is nothing complicated in what I'm about to say. Even the use of the US dollar when calculating your national currency exchange rate may result in serious social and economic consequences. Back in the day, Argentina went through great turmoil relating to their finances and their banking issues. Now look what's going to happen if they only use the dollar or if they directly link their national currency to the US dollar. They're trying to solve their domestic economic problems. And all governments are always taking into account their social obligations to the citizens. And by the way, I'm satisfied to know that the Russian government is 
dealing with its obligation, despite the rising expenses for the defense and security, we are fully complying with all our obligations to the citizens, 100%. Some might say we're not doing enough and uh, more should be done. We were talking to the Republic of Komi about the problems with relocation and so on. But the fact that the state is giving its promises and we stay true to our promises. Now, speaking of the US dollar, they have certain obligations. The retirement benefits, the state employee salaries, and so on and so forth. Generally, there is not enough money. So what would it mean if they started using the dollars? They have their national currency, the peso, and a tool to affect the inflation. That doesn't work perfectly, but still they have the means to balance the healthy economy and their social obligations. Now, if they switch to a foreign currency, they can't print their own money. There's only one way to deal with the inflation, to cut the social expenditure, to cut it everywhere, to cut the salaries, to cut the retirement benefits, the medical expenses, the road infrastructure, the security, and so on. There is no other way if they renounce their national currency. And any government taking such decisions would find itself in a very complicated situation from the point of view of domestic political stability. If they're ready for that, that's their sovereign right. The country is independent and they may take their own decisions. Speaking of us, you see, we're rejecting that. We're not. However, we've been experiencing problems with the transactions in foreign currencies. And by the way, they're shooting themselves in the leg by doing that. They are blocking our access to the US dollars and the euro as universal reserve global currencies. First of all, the US dollars. In 2021, uh, if memory serves me right, we were servicing our experts and we were using 87% of foreign currencies in these transactions. So the US dollars and the euros. The ruble only accounted for 11 or 13%. And the Chinese yuan accounted for 0.4%. As of September this year, the figures are as follows. The rubles accounts for 40%. The yuan accounts for 33%. The overall use of the US dollar and the euro is 24%. It went down from 87 to 24. Why did they do this? They shot themselves in the leg. Is it bad for us? No, it's not. The more we use the national currencies in our economic transactions, the better for us. This increases our sovereignty and our opportunities. So in his speech, Vladimir Putin said that pegging the national currency to the dollar is fraught with severe socioeconomic problems. What do you think some of these problems could be? I think President Putin is making a reference to the fact that because the dollar, the US dollar, is seen as the international reserve currency, um, the United States does two things very often which negatively impacts on the global financial markets. And that is, one, it simply prints money when it needs to have more money and goes into enormous debt. And the reason they can do that is because the dollar is the reserve currency and there's just always going to be guarantee for the U.S. market. Um, that's the first thing, which obviously has downward pressure on other currencies in other countries. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they weaponize the US dollar because it is the international reserve currency. And so when they do not agree with countries, um, 
uh, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of foreign policy behavior, they weaponized the U.S. dollar against those countries by imposing sanctions, by freezing accounts, uh, all because they control the U.S. dollar internationally. And I think President Putin is trying to highlight that this indirectly is actually a threat to the security of the international financial market. All right, Prof. Then also, according to Putin, quote, the more we use the national currency, the better it is for us as it increases our sovereignty and capability, close quote. First of all, what do you think of his statement? And secondly, since he mentioned sovereignty, what do you think is the solution for African countries to gain economic sovereignty? Well, I think, I think again, uh, the point is correct, obviously. To strengthen one's domestic currency, you would want to encourage the, the optimal use of that currency, especially domestically. But also, if you are able to, to try and say to international creditors and debtors that, uh, could you please use my, my currency? Because as we see now in Russia, even though internationally, um, the currency, the ruble, is is, is uh, taking a beating. Actually, domestically, it is very strong because more and more people are trading within the currency. More and more people are using the ruble to actually exchange. Um, and so I think what President Putin is saying is that it's a good thing that we begin to sink domestic, to use the local currency to try and make advances. So in other words, African countries need to capitalize on their domestic economy in order to gain more sovereignty. Is that what you're saying? This is exactly this is exactly what this is being said. And and you know, begin to trade amongst each other in local currencies. It's not an easy thing. It will be a difficult thing because there will obviously be pressure will be brought to bear from the United States and from the international banks and so forth. But the more countries actually trade in their local currencies, the more those currencies will actually be boosted and be stronger. All right. All right. Do you think the world needs an alternative to the dollar and the dollar-dominated financial system today? If so, what would this alternative look like? I think, I think that uh, after the gold standard, um, the world decided uh, that we should peg our reserves uh, to the US dollar. I think that process has run its course. Um, and for the reasons that I've outlined prior, things like weaponizing of the, the US dollar by the American uh, government um, and also manipulating the US dollar uh, against those countries and nations where you are not in agreement. For these reasons, I think people are beginning, there is a, there's a groundswell of support that says that we need to begin to talk about a different system, a system that is pegged perhaps to resources, uh, whether it is mineral resources or other resources, gold, diamonds, platinum, uh, oil, gas, etc. Um, and I think that even if the United States don't want to move in that direction, what we are going to see increasingly happening is grouping such as BRICS and other formations are going to find alternative me me mechanisms and methods to actually pay and transact. Um, and so with the talk of a BRICS currency, I think that is going to grow in popularity. I think that it's going to find a practical expression and that people are to want to um, trade in a different currency. Well, since you mentioned BRICS, all right, Putin allocated quite some time to that theme as well. Uh, let's listen in on some of the things he said about this group of countries and its role in our world. And uh, with respect to the rules-based world order, these rules are in existence because they change on a daily basis depending on, on political experiences. And, uh, you know, immediate interests of some of the stakeholders. How shall that impact the situation? Well, things will develop in the necessary, in the right direction. You will demonstrate that there are very many forces in the world, very many powerful nations that want to live guided not by the unwritten rules, but rather, on the contrary, by the rules 
of the United Nations Charter and other statutory donuts and being guided by the interests thereof and of their partners without establishing military alliances create the context for effective mutually advantageous development. This will be at the heart of Russia's presidency in BRICS. Prof, as we just heard, Putin also spoke of a world order based on constantly changing rules. He said that Russia, when it takes over the chairmanship of BRICS, will work to establish a new, fair and equitable world order. How do you think can Russia achieve this? Yes, I think that Russia is, uh, in keeping with the, the conversations that are happening at BRICS anyway, uh, Russia is going to accomplish this by encouraging multilateral um, expansion. Uh, instead of a unipolar world where it's dominated by the United States, I think Russia is going to try and encourage that we move towards a, firstly, a multilateral uh, environment, but also that the rules of the international game, the rules need to change. And what I mean by that is reform at the United Nations, reform at the United Nations Security Council, reform of international financial architecture in terms of the World Bank, the IMF, and the WTO. Um, you know, I think for the longest time, it should be said, for the longest time, the status quo also benefited Russia. Russia being part of the United States Security Council as a nuclear power, and so on and so forth. But increasingly, with the isolation of Russia, and the sanctions that are being imposed against Russia. Russia has now realized that unless there is a change in that architecture, unless there's a change in the approach of uh, global affairs, it is going to continue to negatively impact Russia. And so Russia and China, through its alliance, are beginning to say, unless we are going to allow ourselves to be isolated and to be seen as the pariahs uh, of the world, we need to change the game, we need to change the rules. And I think when once Russia took takes the chairmanship of BRICS, it's going to push very hard that particular agenda. Prof, thanks a lot. Now, as you might expect, the Ukrainian conflict was allocated uh, quite a bit of time, and I imagine the questions were just as much. Let's listen to a piece of Putin's commentary in regards to that. Well, peace will come when we achieve our goals. And as to the goals, they have not changed. I can remind you what we spoke about. We were talking about denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine, about a neutral status of Ukraine. Now, as to denazification, during the talks process, and uh, after a potential draft agreement was prepared, which was mentioned by the officials in Kiev, they did not agree that a denazification was necessary. And they say that there is no uh, fascization among the population, that there is no growth in Nazi sentiments, but their national hero is not just a, a nationalist, but an actual Nazi, Bandera. He is being extolled in Ukraine, and the current head of the Kiev administration gave a standing applause to a former SS soldier who took part in the Holocaust directly, destroying 1.5 million Jews and Polacks in Ukraine and around it. So denazification is very relevant. And uh, when uh, we conducted the talks, the negotiators in our part heard that it is not ruled out that some legislation may be enacted, but that was in Istanbul. Now, as to demilitarization, if they don't want to sit down at the negotiating table, we are forced to take military measures. But Ukraine is not producing 
It has almost no production at the, at the moment. They're uh, importing everything. And uh, they're importing this uh, free of charge. So they're living off freebies. Pardon my expression. But there is a lot of destruction going on. And I won't uh, have the exact figures on the planes and the missile defense systems, but they gave them 400 tanks, 420 or 30 tanks, and they uh, provided all the equipment they promised. So the West has delivered everything it had promised, and even more. But we've destroyed all that. Since the start of uh, the counter-offensive, we've destroyed 747 tanks, and almost 2,000 300 armored vehicles of various classes. So that's the demilitarization. And if we agree the parameters, if we coordinate the terms, and we did coordinate some terms in Istanbul, but that was thrown out of the window. But we had agreed on the terms. But there are also other possibilities to resolve this. We can either talk or decide this otherwise. So we will aim to Dr. Van Yerden, the Russian president, as we heard now, said that peace will come when Russia achieves its objectives of the special military operation in Ukraine. What is your take on that? Absolutely. At the moment, President Putin and the Russian Federation military forces are in control of the special military operation. They are winning the war. Ukraine is losing the war. And when I say Ukraine, I include the collective West and NATO that has been actively supporting Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is lying in ruins. The only city that is uh, practically functioning and heavily protected is Kiev. Uh, President Zelensky is running into problems in terms of galvanizing additional financial support. We see the US Congress is reluctant to give more aid and money and military assistance to Ukraine. And we now see that even the money that is being proposed by the European Union is being blocked by President Organ from Hungary, uh, saying that we need to not continue fueling this war, but actually to bring an end to it. And peace negotiations are supposed to, to start. And so Putin is aware of all of this. And this is why President Putin is saying, we are going to determine how and when this war will end. Um, and when we are satisfied as the Russian Federation that we have dealt with the Nazi element within Ukraine, as well as um, the, these ideas of wanting to join NATO and so forth, that is when President Putin is going to actually say the war is coming to an end the denazification and the demilitarization of Ukraine. That has always been the objectives. Um, and, and as such, that is why President Putin is saying that uh, they will determine the end of the war, uh, which I think is only right. Remember, and I want to add lastly, remember, at this point in time, the Russian political elite does not trust the collective West. They have made promises before in terms of the Minsk agreements, and they've reneged on those agreements. Um, and so if someone is to be brought in to mediate the peace uh, negotiations and talks, I don't think it is going to be the United States of America, nor is it going to be the Europeans. I think it's going to either be the Chinese or perhaps the African peace delegation that did intervene at some point. Doc, you brought up an interesting point about Hungary's president, Viktor Orban. I saw statements recently from the European Union side saying that they might ban Hungary from voting against the 12th package of sanctions against Russia. Now, the European Union being a representative of the collective West ideology, does this not seem a contradiction in some way? You know, the West always preaches freedom of speech, inclusiveness, and so on and so forth. And now... They want to simply ban a member state from expressing their opinion. What's your take? I think it is just undemocratic. You know, um, they, the, the European Union, the European Union has rules uh, which they must follow, and their rules are very clear that it is premised on consensus. In other words, if one member does not agree 
with a particular position, they need to try and convince that member, not try and uh, prevent that member from voting. So I think it will be extremely unorthodox for the European Union to actually make this move um, where they are going to try and uh, ban Hungary from expressing its free will. Because if they do this, then, of course, the next question is going to be, where do you then draw the line uh, on future decisions that needs to be taken uh, at the, the European Union, including who should or could potentially become member states of the European Union? If one or two object, do you then ban them? So I don't think that that's going to fly, if you ask me. I, I think it's a desperate attempt to try and put some pressure on the president from Hungary. But uh, I think the president is going to remain resolute um, because, you know, he has made it clear from the very beginning that this war has got negative consequences and impacts on Hungary because it's part of the region. And so what they actually want is a peaceful resolution to this conflict. And so I think that President Orban is going to, Orban is going to remain resolute in wanting to find a peaceful solution and not make more money available to fuel the conflict. All right. Thank you, Dr. Van Eerden. Quite interesting insights. Now, the aforementioned statement by Russia's president in regards to the peace coming only when Russia achieves its objectives. This statement has attracted the most attention in the world's media at the moment of him saying it. Why do you think that statement had had such a large impact? I think it has attracted the, the attention of the world because indirectly Putin is saying that he is in charge and is winning the war. And this is not the messaging that the Europeans want to send uh, throughout the war. You know, this, this, you would agree with me that even as we speak, the Ukrainian government, uh, the leadership in, in Ukraine, and indeed most, not all, but most Western media, is still trying to give the impression as if Ukraine is, is putting up a good fight, is able to liberate some uh, parts of the occupied uh, territories, uh, in terms of the Donbass region and so forth. Um, but we all know that this is not the case. Very little progress has been made. Uh, there has been absolutely no progress with regards to um, the offensive that was planned by the Ukrainians. And so I think they're, they're giving that statement attention because Putin is actually indirectly saying that not only are we winning the war, but we are the ones that will determine what is going to be the end result of the war. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point, I must say. Putin also declared that the goals of denazification and demilitarization of Ukraine are still on the agenda. He also said that the West has provided Kiev with everything it can and more. And he also added that these free handouts by the West will someday come to an end. What is your reaction to these statements by the Russia's president? President Putin is trying to make a very clear statement that says that the Europeans are wanting to pretend as if Ukraine is a democratic country and that there is no Nazi right-wing element that is uh, pervasive within not only the armed forces but in government itself. Um, they, they somehow want to pretend as if this is a figment of the Russian president's imagination. Uh, as a justification for his for his invasion into Ukraine. But the truth of the matter is that Putin is very clear, and there is plenty of evidence to suggest that there is indeed a Nazi element within the Ukrainian uh, military uh, establishment, within government, as well as the fact that um, there has been this plan all along for the Ukrainians to to join NATO as a bulwark against the Russian Federation. And uh, Putin is saying he's having none of it. Vladimir Putin also blamed the West for the deterioration in Russian-European relations. He specifically noted that Macron himself has put an end to the two countries' relations and uh, 
actually in a more recent conference, he said that Russia is open to cooperating with Western countries and doesn't intend to shy away from collaboration. Do you think it will be possible to somehow and someday restore that which has been ruined? Look, I mean, you know, this is a very, this is a very sore point for President Putin because uh, it is President Putin um, that have attempted to normalize relations with Western Europe for the longest time. You know, um, when, when Russia applied for membership to NATO and was de denied, it was President Putin that then said, okay, if we can't join NATO, can we then have some security cooperation agreement between the Russian Federation and the European so that we all know where we stand in terms of security? This was rejected. When Russia slowly but surely started integrating into the European market by through the provision of gas and through the provision of cheap oil and cheap gas, albeit through in the main Germany, but not only Germany, that was another attempt of beginning to say that we are not here to be aggressive. We are here to cooperate, to provide cheap energy and to be part of building a strong Europe uh, in terms of its industry and so forth. We now know that that was not uh, received well. And in fact, the pipeline uh, was blown up and sabotaged um, to try and scupper those relations yet again. We know that Russia is very active in the Arctic, trying to create another sea route, safe passage, not only for Russians, but also for Western Europe, in terms of finding a shorter way to the Far East in the trade relations. And yet it is seen as if Russia is aggressively militarizing the region and wanting to take control. So it, it, it seems to me, I'm, I'm mentioning all of these examples because, and this is notwithstanding, oh, I should also mention, notwithstanding inviting lots and lots of Western Europe uh, uh, industry into Russia in terms of automobile companies, in terms of um, the, the hospitality industry, in terms of retail, in terms of fast foods, etc., etc. And still, the Europeans view the Russians with suspicion. And in fact, as soon as there is a conflict, uh, as we've seen with uh, Ukraine, they all withdraw from the Russian Federation, which also speaks volumes in terms of their commitment uh, to uh, serving uh, and trading and doing goods and services with the Russian people. So for all these reasons, Putin is within his right to say that we have been trying over the last three to four decades, we have been trying to normalize relations with Europe. We have been trying to say we are a friend and not a foe. And every time our hand is, is pushed aside uh, and so on. And so it gets to a point where Russia is now because of this, beginning to look a little bit further in terms of wanting to find friends and allies uh, such as China, such as Africa, such as Latin America. And an interesting metaphor Putin made uh, referring to the West, he said that while claiming to act like General de Gaulle, the West is currently acting more like Marshal Pétain. <laughs> Do you agree with this metaphor? And how does this behavior manifest itself with African countries? Yeah, look, I, I completely agree with it. And as I said, for all the aforementioned examples I've made, but let me also add, he makes that, that analogy because he's also trying to say that it was Russia. It was the Soviet Union that was part of the Allied forces fighting against Nazi Germany. It was the Soviet Union that uh, lost millions of countrymen and women in that war to try and bring an end to the war, to try and bring an end to the Holocaust and, and so forth. And, and yet we are still as Russians being treated as if we are the enemy, we are the wrongful party. Um, and so I think the analogy is, is trying to say, even despite all of those sacrifices that the Russians or the Soviets have done, um, time and time again, they are seen as not being welcomed into Europe, not as seen as Europeans, 
and certainly not seen as friends and allies. And to no surprise, Russia's president also included uh, the Gaza situation in his uh, in his press conference. Let's listen to some of that before moving on to the next question. Well, first of all, I see what is happening in the Gaza Strip. That is uh, just uh, my evaluations. I agree with what is, has been said. I would like to uh, say that uh, President Erdogan plays a leading role in this, in uh, restoring the situation in Gaza Strip. He is one of the leaders of the international community who uh, pay attention to this tragedy and do everything to change the situation for the better, to create conditions for long-term peace. And this is obvious. And he's very active on this track. And I wish him all the best. Everything that is happening is a, a catastrophe. There is also a situation related to the Ukrainian crisis. But uh, you and everyone here, everyone in the world, see, let's see, see what is happening in the special military operation and in Gaza Strip, and everyone can see the difference. Nothing like that is happening in Ukraine, if we compare it to Gaza Strip. There are thousands of women and children. The Secretary General of the UN said that today Gaza Strip is uh, the biggest cemetery of children in the world. And uh, this evaluation means a lot. This is an objective evaluation. As for the role of the UN, there is nothing unusual in this. I have uh, been speaking about this during Cold War. Different uh, states uh, were blocking some decisions uh, that were promoted by other states. But initially, the UN was created to find consensus. If it is not found, then the decisions cannot be made. Nothing unusual is happening in the life of the UN. It was always like that, especially for taking Cold War. The uh, Mr. Romeka, foreign minister, uh, he, he was called Mr. No because uh, Russia, Soviet Union was always using his veto right. Well, if uh, something uh, in the country thinks that something, some actions are hostile, and uh, then they will not be taken. And this is important to have such mechanisms because then the UN will only be used as a platform to talk. After the First World War, for instance, that what has happened. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to find consensus. Like Turkey, we think that we should implement uh, the UN decisions about the creation of the Palestine a state with the capital in the eastern Jerusalem. We need to create fundamental uh, basis uh, for uh, the Israeli-Palestine uh, settlement. As for the plans, we stay in constant contact with uh, President Erdogan and uh, we have very similar positions. I think that we'll meet with him. I plan to do that. I was planning to do that. There's, it's not a secret. Uh, uh, President Erdogan didn't have time because of his schedule. Well, I am ready to go to Turkey and I informed him about that. Uh, but, well, he couldn't do this because of his schedule. It was not my fault. Maybe uh, in the beginning of the next year we'll have a visit. As for our efforts, you know that in two Arab countries, uh, we have consultations in Saudi Arabia, in United Arab Emirates. First of all, we need to preserve people, we need to protect people in Gaza Strip. We are always in, on, in contact on that. We need to provide massive humanitarian support to people. When we were in the United Arab Emirates, I was there. We knew that uh, 
Emirates created in Gaza Strip, not in Gaza Strip, but near it, near the border, they created a hospital there, a field hospital. So um, maybe it's possible that Russia could open its own field hospital there uh, at the stadium. For that, uh, we need uh, the permission of uh, the Egypt and Israel. I have spoken to President of Egypt. Uh, he's in favor of that, supports this idea. I have spoken to the Prime Minister Netanyahu. We had consultations on that. Uh, uh, with um, special forces and uh, Israel thinks that uh, uh, Russian hospital uh, will not will be in danger in Gaza Strip. But it doesn't mean that we will stop these efforts. Maybe today it's dangerous and Israel will not support it. However, we have some agreements with Israel and they asked us about that. They asked us to uh, provide more medical equipment and uh, medicine. We will do that without any doubt. With all the countries, uh, we stay in contact and we'll continue to work actively with them. So based on these statements during Putin's direct line with the population, what is your take on that which is said and uh, Russia's position in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general? Yeah, so the first thing I have to say is that Russia could have and should do much more with regards to the ongoing uh, conflict and the occupation of Israeli uh, forces in the territories of Palestine. So I think that's the first thing that I want to say that, you know, it, it, the, the Israel has now occupied Palestine for 75 years. That's a very long time. And I'm saying that Russia as a federation could have done much more to come to the aid of the Palestinian struggle. Um, having said that, there is now currently a conflict. Um, and I think that, that the president is correct. Uh, we look at a ongoing conflict and or war, uh, even though it's called special military operation, with Ukraine. And the two years that that war has been going on, raging on, or that conflict, we have not seen the kind uh, levels of killing of innocent civilians, women and children that we are observing now in Gaza. Um, it is completely, completely uh, murderous and, and, and genocidal, and it's ex unacceptable. And I think that President Putin is correct in saying, don't compare the two. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that if you do want to compare, then you need to talk about the equal application of international and humanitarian law. Um, you know, the, the ICC was quick to, to issue an arrest warrant uh, against the Russian President Putin. Um, and yet we see these murderous genocidal um, uh, laws that are being broken and nothing is being done against the, the leadership of the Netanyahu government who publicly and openly admit that they are, they are, with, uh, they are dealing with an ethnic cleansing operation. These human animals must be removed. Uh, we must flatten Gaza. These are all very, very incendiary statements that suggest that they plan and they are executing an ethnic cleansing. And yet, uh, Mr. Khan from the ICC is very quiet. Uh, we've seen inaction from the United Nations, lots of condemnation, but no nothing practically happening. Um, it is the United States and Israel that are the ones that decide when and how much aid can and cannot come into Gaza. Um, so, you know, the two, the two situations are just not comparable. Um, what the Israeli government is doing in Gaza is uh, unforgiving. Um, and even the argument, Victor, even the argument that, yes, but Hamas did what they did on October 7. Absolutely. Uh, what Hamas did as a uh, liberation organization um, was to try and fight uh, and make a point about the occupier. 
the manner in which it went about that. We can debate the merits and, and demerits of that. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that what happened on October 7 was permissible. Um, you know, there were horrendous things that happened, but the action of the Israeli government in response to that, two months later, one day of, 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 of action, vis-a-vis two months of retaliation, um, is completely out of sync, disproportionate, and the masculine of civilians women and children in particular, the targeting of hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, and so forth, places of worship, um, is completely unacceptable. And I think that President Putin uh, has realized two things strategically. One, Russia needs to change its posture towards the Israeli government, a posture that it has not had for a very long time. Um, But also, two, to try and show a more human face to the suffering of the Palestinians. Um, And I think that is very brave of the Russian president and the Russian government. And I just hope that it will actually push and force the Israeli government uh, to begin to realize that the only way out of this is a lasting peace solution. And that was Dr. Oscar van Heerden. Thanks for joining me today. It was my biggest pleasure, as always, to have you join me. Now, for a quick review and another perspective, let's welcome Ovigwe Gwegu, a policy advisor at Development Reimagined. Ovigwe, welcome to Afroverdict and thanks for joining me. Uh, as you just heard, Dr. Van Heerden and I have been discussing several points of Putin's conference. In his speech, Putin said that pegging the national currency to the dollar is fraught with severe socioeconomic problems. What could some of these problems be? Yeah, the question of linking uh, or the issue of linking national national currency to the dollar is indeed uh, pregnant with risks. I mean, if you look at the continent of Africa today, the the, the leadership in some countries are calling for, you know, a more diversified uh, up, uh, currency basket when, they are, when it comes to global trade. Uh, because, and that is because of you know, pressure that some countries are facing. Kenya is, for instance, facing so much uh, dollar shortages. Nigeria has a lot of prob- a currency crisis right now in, in Nigeria where the exchange rate has been going up and up uh, for many, many for many, 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 many weeks, right? And we even had to float the Naira because we had parallel markets, you know, uh, but we floated the Naira where the, uh, the, the central bank says every, uh, to harmonize the price, yet the price in the black market continues to, you know, to, to gallop, you know, away from the from the, ofi- the official what you call the official ex- exchange rate, and that's because there's a shortage, and and this this is the kind of challenge that is already affecting imports, so uh, uh, causing a uh, inflation inflation in, in the country. So many African countries see the see the uh, dollar not only from their own internal problem, see the challenge of linking their currency to the dollar not only from internal challenges that they have, but also with the U.S. and it's the way it manipulates its interest rates, essentially exporting inflation to, to the rest of the world, you know. So these are some of the reasons why we see uh, uh, countries pivoting away from the from the dollar. Ovigwe, the more we use the national currency, the better it is for us as it increases our sovereignty and capabilities, according to Vladimir Putin. What do you think of the statement? And what do you think is the solution for African countries to gain economic sovereignty? I think the, the, the solution to Africa's problem when it comes to in, in global trade or international trade, cross-border trade, is to, first of all, develop its own, uh, uh, so utilize its own, you know, uh, inter- payment system, right? So we've done, we've done this at the African Union level with Afrexim Bank, you know, there is the, uh, the I think it's integrated payment, something, IPAPs or something, I can't remember, but there is there's, there is a, a mechanism that has been developed by the, by the African uh, continent to facilitate cross-border trade within the continent using one, one, one system. 
whereby we don't need to use the dollar and lose so much money on on a conversion fees. I think the, the currently they say it's about five point two billion dollars uh, a year that is lost conversion fees. I think that was what the Kenyan president said during his recent visit to India, for instance, when he was interviewed by uh, first first post, India journalists, you know, Pakisharma of first post, right? So. There is there is there is that momentum first of all, first and foremost. So it's not about the dollar; it's about how do we ensure that we can trade more cheaply, right? And and the best way to do that is to have our own system and use it, right? But at the same time, there's recognition that we we have to trade with the rest of the world. You know, we have to trade with China. We have to trade with Russia. We have to trade with India. We have to trade with the European Union, with the Amer- with uh, with uh, America. So, we are trading with America. Of course, you can use dollars. We are trading with with the Europeans. Maybe you can use euro. You know, but we are trading with Russia and China. Then we we don't have to use dollar and euro. We can come up with uh, with alternative um, baskets of currencies. And I think this is what makes many countries on the continent very hopeful. And very much interested in BRICS because they, they see that this is a, this is a systemic issue that BRICS is trying to solve, and uh, that solution will be of the, to the benefit of countries across the world, particularly in so-called global south. Avigwe, now that you've mentioned BRICS, how do you think can it promote an alternative approach to the West to solving global problems? Yeah, BRICS is is a very special organization in the sense that there were several, what you could say, global South organizations that were in ex- that they are currently in existence. There's the D7, there's Mint, but BRICS has consistently been developing as a as a uh, mechanism where many countries now see it as a a, a a counterbalance to Western uh, influence in terms of global governance, you know. And the truth of the matter is, the the reason why there's excitement over BRICS is because people are yearning for an alternative, an, an alternative approach. Because one, the main challenge of the current uh, international uh, order or liberal international order, which the which you could say is comatose or even it uh, is fading out is that it protects countries in the euro-american axis but it doesn't it doesn't bind these countries you know it protects their interests but doesn't bind doesn't bind them to international to international law at the same time it binds countries outside of outside of the non the the non uh Outside of the West, or we call it the countries in the non-West, but doesn't protect their their interests. I will send this particular uh, line because I'm listening from a publication, so you could you can have it. And for that reason, there is there is hypocrisy in dealing with issues. So I give you an example. Example. Let's look at the 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 issue of the war uh, of the war in, in Gaza and and the Russia uh, Ukraine. A conflict, you would find that when there was when there was uh, the, when there was the uh, the, the, the operation where there, where there was accusation of you know of uh, children be taken from Ukraine into 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 Russia, taken out of a war zone to kept safe, and there th- there came the ICC you know in, uh, indictment on President Putin and and and, 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 all, and all of that. At the same time, we. we People were pointing that this is this this is it's political move, and they said it's not political. It is based on, you know, on uh, what uh, their investigation. And I said, okay, now look at what is happening in in Gaza. Thousands of children have have, have been killed. Forty percent of all casualties in Ga- in Gaza are, are children. This is not people taken out of the war war zone. This is people who kids who have been killed, right? And there is not a single Western country calling for an ICC investigation of Benjamin Netanyahu. So this is the duplicity and the double standard of protecting them but not binding them that, 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 I'm, that I'm talking talking about. And countries want a world where international relations is based on international law 
establishing the UN Charter and the UN process, not on some made-up rules-based international order that nobody signed, signed up to. And BRICS is seen as a major force in bringing, in bringing to the realization of that, of that, uh, uh, that, that, that world. Now, another way BRICS is pro projecting itself as, a, as an alternative is also even in the Gaza conflict. If we look at the, you know, uh, the initiatives and the efforts by countries to really diffuse the, the conflict, most of it has been led by BRICS countries or countries who are going to be BRICS members in a, in a few weeks. You know, UAE has been a, a, a key role. The, um, the Saudis have been playing a very important role. Russia has played an important role. It did put out, the, I think, the first UNSC resolution, you know. Uh, and then there was the there, there was also the one put out by the uh, the, the UA, UAE, the UAE and China called for a special session at as a point at some point. You know, so a lot of the diplomatic initiative and efforts, you know, that are, that's kind of bring to the end or ceasefire rather has been really been done by, by BRICS countries, right? So it is it shows the, that they are not just, you know, uh, speaking, but are putting matching uh, words with, with action, trying to, you know, to advance an, an alternative approach to resolving this conflict, because this is a conflict where the U.S. has really monopolized the peace process, right? China is bringing back the idea of, an international conference on on the question of Pal of Palestine, for instance, that that proposition was made by Wang Yi before his visit to the United States. So this 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 is the kind of action, but because this is and and momentum action that shows momentum of, of global are trying to resolve some of these legacy uh, conflicts and BRICS seems to be championing it with both two state solution and even just the immediate. Uh, 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 ceasefire. Look, and just my last question quickly. Vladimir Putin said that, quote, peace will come when Russia achieves its objective, close quote, of the special military operation. What is your opinion on this statement? Yeah, with regard to, to the Ukraine question, I think uh, Russia has, you know, been very consistent in what is, its objectives are, you know, in the area of the special military op operation. And it it has also worked very uh, very very hard to try to achieve them, and it has not. Of course, the road has not been smooth. There have been so many issues issues along along the way. Uh, the Ukrainian offensive, you could say, a spring of, uh, summer offensive rather, you could say, has essentially been a failure. Although uh, people like Zeluzhny using the word stalemate, even the recent visit by uh, by uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky to Washington has ended less than, far, far less than he, he had hoped for because he couldn't, wasn't able to convince the, the, the Republicans and, and all of that. So I think that now, of course, it's expected that Russia will capitalize on its situation to achieve its objectives and the, the, the outlook in 2024 is going to, it seems to be in, in favor of of that right and the earlier you know this can come to a close um the, the better because as we all know when this is going for very long it, it tends to affect public attitude and uh, and se sentiments on against both sides So as we come to the end of this episode, I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Oscar van Heerden and Ovigo Eguego for joining us to analyze Putin's annual year-end direct line press conference. It was insightful to hear their perspectives on Putin's stance on de-dollarization, the current world order, BRICS, the Ukrainian conflict, and Russia-Europe relations, as well as the Gaza situation. It's clear that Putin's views on these issues are complex and multifaceted, and they have significant implications for global politics. As we continue to monitor these developments, it's important that we remain informed and engaged in the conversation, so stay tuned for updates on the Sputnik Africa Telegram channel and other socials. Likewise, you can find more Afroverdict episodes on various podcasting platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Pocket Casts, Afripods, Podcast Addict, as well as Cosbox. 
That's a wrap up for today's episode of the Afro Verdict podcast. So I'll see you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.